Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Well, Vani, as more and more vaccines get into the system, into people's arms, the question and discussions are starting to build. When will people go back to work? Do they want to go back to work? Will they feel comfortable going back to work? Rebecca Ray, Executive Vice President of Human Capital for the Conference Board, uh, board joins us here. Uh, you know, Rebecca, talk to us about this survey that you guys did in talking to workers and how they feel about going back to work eventually. What did you learn? Hi, well, good morning. Um, you know, this is part of our continuing series. We, we reached out a couple of times last fall, and it was interesting to see what uh, we thought might be some differences given the advent of the vaccine and set aside for a moment some of the hiccups in, in distribution, but at least it's available and starting to, to be distributed. And, and what we found was that about 76% of the 2,200-plus respondents said they planned to take it. But there's a good fifth of those respondents who said they were still not decided, about 19%. So it's, it's not quite the panacea, I think, that we thought it, it might have been, especially when you think about the fact that 45% of the respondents said that their companies had not uh, communicated a vaccination policy, and 44%, just about the same number, uh, said that they were, their plans to reopen the workplace uh, we're, we're still unclear. And, you know, this is setting aside those who never closed, and but just those who had closed are thinking about reopening. So what about those people who were asked if they would go back, if it was made mandatory before they entered their office buildings that they had to have the vaccine? Do the answers change in that scenario, Rebecca? Not really, because what we learned is that of those who did know what their companies were going to share as a, as a you know, policy, only 1% said that they were manda- mandating it for, for all workers, or only about 1% said that it would be mandated for some workers. So it's you know, a, a very, very small percentage who are mandating mm. it. Um, and so most companies have taken the route, of, if they're saying anything at all, of not mandating but strongly encouraging. There's about 34%. Uh, what was surprising to us is that a lot of people responded, um, excuse me, not many responded that they were uh, given any kind of incentives. Uh, we thought that perhaps more companies would be offering paid time off. We've seen a few of those things in the headlines or some other kind of um, incentive to get the vaccine, but that's not what this survey found. And uh, Rebecca, I know some people that have expressed reluctance to getting uh, uh, the vaccines. For some people, they're just maybe anti-vaxxers. For others, there may be some social reasons. What are some of the key reasons that you found about, you know, maybe some commonalities in folks that really don't intend to take the vaccine? Sure. I think there are still some lingering concerns about the efficacy of the vaccine itself. Um, There are also uh, some people who indicated they were concerned about the side effects of the vaccine itself. And they were also a little concerned that once the vaccine uh, had been administered, how long that was that protection was in place and how often they would need to go through this process. And, you know, one of the things we learned uh, earlier on is that set aside the vaccine or not, many people are very concerned about contracting it, especially women who feel that they may indeed bring it home to those for whom they care and you know, we can talk about whether this is right or wrong, but, you know, elder care and child care still falls disproportionately on the shoulders of women. But something else we learned, and it's been consistent in these three surveys, 
is that people don't necessarily have a high level of confidence that their colleagues are going to follow the safety protocols that a company is, you know, perhaps thought carefully about and trying to implement. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? And you can't exactly ask straight out and, and you can't sort of set your own mandates. I mean, I guess companies have been very understanding so far and they've obviously managed to make work from home something that can be done. Will there come a time, though, Rebecca, when they say, look, this is not on anymore? I mean, we have to minimize this. People have to come into the office. I, I think that's right. I, I think there's um, I think there's less of an appetite for an all-voluntary return. Uh, we're starting to see that in a little bit of the shift of the numbers. You know, there's, there's over time, fewer or more are uncomfortable at some level, and more are very comfortable. Uh, but it's clear that there's going to be some hybrid for some time. But I think companies have started to shift away from, let's be remote all the time. And we see that from some of our other research, particularly our uh, C-suite challenge report that came out last month. Mm. You know, we have a lot of people, particularly at the CEO level, yep. who are very concerned about maintaining culture. Absolutely. And uh, Rebecca, these surveys are just phenomenal because it's very hard to actually figure out what people are thinking out there. And of course, thinking changes over time and evolves. Rebecca Ray is Executive Vice President of Human Capital at the Conference Board. And thank you. Bitcoin up more than 13% right now. This after Tesla revealed in a filing that it invested one and a half billion US dollars in Bitcoin and signaled its intent to begin accepting the cryptocurrency as a form of payment. Elon Musk, of course, has been pretty vocal on Twitter about Bitcoin and his support for it and also for some other cryptocurrencies like Dogecoin. Let's bring in Mike McGlone, who can tell us a lot more about this phenomenon and how it might, long it might last. Mike McGlone is commodity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. So is this 13% runoff purely based on Elon Musk's support for Bitcoin. Well, hello, Vani. I think it's definitely a big part of it. It seems like this news with Tesla probably flipped Bitcoin over that inflection point and getting above that 40,000 resistance and probably moves it up to the next key level of about 50,000. 50,000 is significant because it'd be a market cap around $1 trillion. Now, right now, Bitcoin and Tesla have right about the same market cap, just above $800 billion. The unique thing is Tesla can issue shares and, and bonds, and with that money, buy Bitcoin, and the, the supply is fixed. And that's part of the unique thing about Bitcoin. It's becoming an adopted reserve asset, and it might fail, but I think most entities on the planet are realizing, well, I better have some of it just in case it does succeed as a global reserve asset. Hey, um, Mike, I know you've been tracking Bitcoin, uh, you know, really since its inception here, and, and been writing some really insightful research on it. What is your sense of institutional investor adoption is this part of the average institutional investors portfolio in terms of asset allocation hey paul it's getting there and i think the average institutional um, investor realizes if they don't have part of this the fear of missing out and actually not being part of this new reserve asset is greater than it going to zero so look let's look at the good example tesla's the biggest name before it was it was microstrategy and i like to use the simple example my son and i did over a super bowl bet he i won a hundred dollars from him i said okay well you put it in bitcoin so when we get to Super Bowl 80, where do you think that will be? I suspect that they're going to add a lot of zeros to that 100. But if it goes to, you know, if it fails, who cares? But to me, this is what's happening on a global scale. And I don't, right at this stage, I don't know what's going to take to stop it, except higher prices. So what happens with these Redditor crowds? 
I mean, we're seeing it now. Obviously, Elon Musk is also, you know, having a huge influence over them. Do they just follow the crowd when it comes to who the next great hero is? I mean, <laughs> PSTH, Persons Who Are, is also on there as, you know, as a as a potential target for these guys. And they love it. You know, they're not looking at people's histories really at all, it seems. Well, for the traders, something like a speculative digital asset, like we started off with Dogecoin, makes sense. But that's clearly that. It could easily go to zero, and I don't think it has much really intrinsic value like Bitcoin does. Um, so I, I look at Bitcoin as the kind of asset, it's, it's, a, um, it's a collectible, and prudent people should accumulate it. Because there's a potential future. There'll be a major difference between people who own it and people who don't. It could happen. So why take the risk? And the key area that's really starting to show from is from gold. The old-time gold allocators who've held it for centuries are now realizing that they have to have some of that money in Bitcoin because if they don't, they might miss out on this reserve asset, which is replacing the old rock. And what's next potential on that, on that iteration is central banks. So I'm wondering what the, I mean, again, Mike, just, uh, you know, my call on Bitcoin, just as my, my personal understanding, is relatively fixed supply of this commodity and presumably uh, ever-increasing demand from different uses within society. Therefore, that supply-demand is, is the bullish call there. What's the, what's the risk to that simplistic investment outlook for, for Bitcoin? Hi, Paul. I think, there, I think there's two key risks. One, first of all, is what happened last year, risk, um, a major risk-off uh, event like we had in Q1 last year. Bitcoin dropped 50% and came back. To me, that's a big-picture thing that will actually help Bitcoin. The, to me, the most significant risk I see is some kind of something I can't predict, some kind of glitch in the technology, some kind of major hack. Um, that I don't know how to predict, predict. And some people like Michael Saylor, who are major technology experts, say, well, this is unlikely, partly because it's the, most, it's the largest decentralized network in the history of mankind, and it's been through so many tests. You know, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. And that's the key narrative of Bitcoin. It hasn't killed it. It's been through major hacks, major issues, and it keeps getting stronger. So that, to me, is what's happening. And it's, 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 it's mined. There's nodes on a global scale that are completely independent. It's no one else's project or liability, which is a very unique thing in a world going digital. Yeah, absolutely. What are the other crypto coins that might make it? Well, Ethereum is the number two, and it has a lot of good oomph behind it. I mean, it's it's a central coin for decentralized exchanges, um, decentralized finance, and it's a major platform for many smart contracts and things that you can do in the space where you can't in, in, in many other areas. So the thing I look about Ethereum is it's not going to be a global reserve asset. It's more reflective to me as, of some of these techs, uh, fintech stocks in the stock market. And when I get the questions, I get a lot of it, and you see it today, you don't hear about major corporations allocating towards Ethereum or major economics departments asking me about Ethereum. They all ask me about Bitcoin. So, but it's interesting. I'm looking at the chart of Ethereum. It's, it's a great chart as well. Um, you know, it, it, that supply-demand dynamic that's arguably underpinning the, the move up in Bitcoin, I'm just unsure why there couldn't be more supply, why there couldn't be a, a perfect replacement 
for Bitcoin in the marketplace? There's 8,000 wannabes, Paul. That's the key thing okay. about it. And a year ago, there was maybe 3,000. So ease of entry, it's, there's anybody can launch a coin. That's a problem for the wide space. But if you have an index tracking in that space, the index is going to have a survivor bias, which is why I like the Bloomberg Galaxy Crypto Index. For instance, it, re it recently kicked out Ripple because of the SEC charges. So that is a problem in the broad space. But once you're adopted like gold and there's nothing else like it, that's the key thing about Bitcoin. It's been adopted. It's already won that race. Uh, some kind of major hack is the main issue, but it's already won the race of robustness and adoption. Got to ask you a quick question about oil because we're seeing WTI at nearly $58 a barrel today. It's been so long since we even saw oil above <laughs> 50 and suddenly we're very clearly approaching 60. What absolutely is going on here? It needs a, a, a combination of higher stock market, reduced, sustained discipline from OPEC. We have to have production costs to decline. Um, and uh, demand to pick up. So to me, oil is really pushing on a string here. For instance, average production costs for U.S. shales dropped below $40 a barrel. That's not good for, for higher prices to sustain. In addition, the correlation with oil and crude oil fossil fuels to the stock market is the highest ever. We go back to 1960, we measure on a 24-month basis. So I view oil at 57 as very risky. 57 is the average price from 2019 before the before mm. the. Uh, um, pandemic. So I view this level as a, a very high risk level market should decline from. Hey, Mike, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate getting your thoughts on commodities, particularly Bitcoin. What a big move we're seeing here as Elon Musk, uh, you know, talks about Bitcoin and starts actually buying it. Mike McClellan, commodity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Another green day on the screen. This time, small cap stocks really leading the way up 1.75%. Talking a little bit about that rotation trade that uh, has been so successful for so many investors since, let's call it August, September, kind of rotating perhaps out of some of those big growth names that have worked so well for many investors over the years into some more cyclical, maybe even some smaller cap names. That seems to be the trade working today. David Katz, Chief Investment Officer from Matrix Asset Advisors, joins us. Matrix has about $814 million in assets under management. David, thanks so much for joining us here. I'd love to get your thoughts on kind of where you guys are seeing value in the market, opportunities in the market. Is it with those traditional big cap or top line growth stories that we've grown so accustomed to? Or have you actually been rotating into some of those more cyclical names? Uh, the latter. We think that the best opportunities in the market today are in a number of areas um, that would trip, uh, typically fall into value areas, things like uh, the financials are looking particularly attractive. The healthcare stocks are looking very attractive. Uh, we think telecom, uh, utilities. So if you look at those companies, a lot of them are selling at 12 times to 14 times earnings. If you look at the market overall, it's at about 20 times earnings. And if you look at those growth stocks, the technology growth stocks that everybody is so excited about, Many of them are at 30 times earnings, uh, and there are even a number of uh, companies at 50 to 100 times earnings. So we think it's an odd market. There are lots of areas that are very expensive that we worry about, and there are lots of areas that we think represent great opportunity. Uh, and we do think the market is going to go through a rotation this year from the expensive to the cheap. Uh, you're coming out of a recession, and historically, when you come out of recessions, value does very well. So therein lies the opportunity. We think if you're looking in the rearview mirror, um, you know, you're, you're 
buying the things that did great last year. We don't think it's going to be a repeat in 2021. David, how concerned are you that the Redditor crowd might target one of the stocks that you perceive to be value stocks? Because after all, they said GameStop was a value stock and that's why they were investing. But we all know that it was, you know, only part of the explanation. So we are a long-only manager, and we're trying to buy companies with really strong fundamentals that sell at 10, 12 times earnings. So that really doesn't fall into the Reddit uh, area that companies are targeted. You know, GameStop might have been uh, perceived as value if you were willing to say that they're going to fix their business. When we looked at GameStop, um, you know, it, it, it was a company whose time – uh, has come and gone. We don't think they're as viable in the future. So it was something that we worry about on a valuation basis. But when Reddick has gotten involved, valuation doesn't matter on, you know, in terms of a short squeeze. On a long-only portfolio, uh, if you're buying a company uh, that's growing earnings at 12 times earnings, you know, if Reddick gets behind it, you know, we get our valuation much quicker. But we don't think they would try to short uh, these no, no, really yeah. solid companies. Yeah, yeah. Dave, what do you guys think of bank stocks uh, right here? They have had a run off the bottom, but still a lot of concern out there given how low interest rates are. Well, there are about six or seven variables with bank stocks, and and five of them are very, very good. So short-term rates at zero, not good for banks. Uh, The yield curve steepening, and it has been in a very significant way in the last uh, month and a half, is a very significant positive for banks. So the 10-year was at 0.6. Now it's at one6 uh, that's a good thing. Uh, the regulatory environment with Janet Yellen at the head of the Treasury is uh, positive. The fact that the Fed is allowing them to buy back stock again and ultimately is going to allow them to raise their dividends in 2021, a positive. The new relief package uh, really allows consumers and small businesses to bridge the current uh, recession into better times this summer. So all those things are really good. Uh, bank stocks have started to perk up, but they've lagged the market in a huge way in the last year. We think it's a great catch-up trade. Uh, we think that's going to be a leadership group this year. So companies like U.S. Bank Corp., J.P. Morgan, uh, Truist, all positioned to be a lot higher. Uh, and it's an area where you're not taking on your traditional bank risk at the end of a recession because we do see the credit trends are very good. Dave, are you frustrated at Batrix? I feel like it's been almost values time for so long and yet each time it's a head fake. I mean, are you frustrated with Coca-Cola? Are you frustrated with Verizon? Are you frustrated with Kellogg? Well, we think value has definitely struggled. And as as you said, the last decade value has um, lagged growth. And last year, some areas of value started to come back in the fourth quarter, but the dividend payers have not yet. Uh, As you know, I've been doing this for 35 plus years, and we've gone through lots and lots of cycles. And a lot of what's going on now feels very much like the end of 1998, 99. And subsequently, what happened, it was a great period for value and and growth stocks that uh, were really good businesses didn't do a lot in terms of investment returns for a long time. So having gone through this before, we think we know how this ends. So another uh, six months? Because I remember it it was just, Julian Robinson got out right before value hit, right? It was was like the worst timing in the world, yeah. Um, So, and and Coca-Cola is an interesting thing. Coca-Cola is going to be a reopening play. 50% of their business comes from venues like sporting events, 
uh, concerts, restaurants. So we think that even though it's value and it's paying a great dividend, that as soon as people perceive the economy opening up this summer, uh, that stock should have a really good run-up. Kellogg, uh, I think you'd mentioned, uh, been frustrating because their business has been doing very well. Uh, earnings are good, very good cash flow. Stock hasn't done anything. We think they're going to get a, a nice boost when people focus on that they're the largest fake meat manufacturer in the world. Um, well, you know, so a competitor impossible burger. David, it is always great to speak with you and thank you for your thoughts on value on Reddit and much, much more today. David Katz is Chief Investment Officer at Matrix Asset Advisors and we always look forward to speaking with him. Renaissance Technologies, I'm sure you've heard of them. They've been around for 40 years, run by Jim Simons, a former code breaker for the NSA. Well, it's now the world's largest quantitative hedge fund. But in fact, it's getting less large. Clients pulling $5 billion since December 1st. Hema Palmer has the story and can explain to us what's behind these redemptions. Hema, why are people pulling money all of a sudden from Renaissance? Yes, so Renaissance, as you mentioned, is you know the biggest hedge fund and they're very renowned in the industry. They were a pioneer essentially of quantitative investing and have had up until recently a very strong streak of performance. But 2020 really hurt Renaissance's public hedge funds um, and many other quantitative funds which really struggled to uh, produce returns. Renaissance's funds were down between 19% and 32% which are pretty extreme losses for investors in those funds. That's part of, you know, that's, that's a large reason as to why we're seeing these kinds of redemptions. So, Hema, the, these quantitative funds, and, and you point out in your piece, it's not just Renaissance, it's Two Sigma and others as well. What didn't, what did not work with their strategies? Was the volatility that we saw in some of these, um, call it Reddit names, just too much? So here's the thing with quantitative strategies is they use historical data. They scour through data that goes back um, decades, and they look for signals and patterns that might explain what's happening now. And in a year like 2020, when we haven't seen a pandemic in over a century, uh, markets don't seem to be acting in the ways that we typically would think that they do. It really throws these computer models, these algorithms out of whack. And nothing, no historical data really can prepare them for what, um, you know, what the trading environment is like. And that's why last year you really saw the human run funds do very well and the quantitative strategies struggle extremely. It's really amazing because you would imagine that they'd be given a few months or, you know, that this money would be longer term money. Why are investors able to pull this kind of money at such short notice? Who are these investors that are doing that? So the way the redemption terms work at Renaissance is you um, you need to give one month's notice uh, for the redemptions that you'd like to seek, and then you get that money back a month later. So you'll get it back within two months of the date that you say you want it back. Um, we don't know who precisely uh, these investors are that are asking for money, but we do know that $5 billion across three months, uh, or you know, since December 1st, some of these uh, redemptions are pending through the end of February. Um, but $5 billion is pretty substantial. Even for a $60 billion fund, uh, sorry, firm, which is still a giant, um, they will continue to be a giant even after these redemptions. Um, but it's still, you know, a pretty significant uh, chunk of money to, to be lost so quickly, too. So, Hema, we saw, I guess, a week or two ago, Steve Cohen at Point72 opened up his fund for the first time in a long time to new capital 
here. What's the feeling within the hedge fund industry as they look back on 2020 and all the volatility, whether it was pandemic, whether it was the Reddit trading, has have the hedge funds taken a kind of a got, you know kind of a hit to the reputation at all? Well, it depends on the strategy because actually last year was a very good strategy, a uh, very good year performance-wise for a lot of the big name human run funds. You saw 20, 30, 40, 50 percent, sometimes even more performance numbers, higher performance numbers last year as um, human run funds were able to really navigate the space. Um, you saw that steady rally from April onwards. Um, so if you're positioned well in March, and if you were positioned well following March, then you actually did um, pretty incredibly, as, as a number of funds did. Now, as, you know, as we talked about, the computer-run strategies really didn't do as well. Um, and so you really do see a bit of a stark divide between the strategies and between who performed and who didn't. Do we have any so idea on, you know, what you're looking at? what the responses are from these quant funds if some of this money wants to go back in pretty soon if we start seeing a turnaround and a better imp- improved even performance from these funds will they take that money back you think Emma? Um, I think it's hard to say probably um, I-, I would suppose that um, that funds you know would be happy to, t- to take money back if they have lost um, you know we don't entirely know we do know that Renaissance did tell their investors last year that they were um, under-hedged going into March's collapse and then over-hedged when the market rallied. So they basically lost on both ends. Um, and that kind of you know, explains a little bit of, of why their performance didn't do so well. They were just poorly positioned in, in both regards, missing uh, the opportunity of the dip and then you know, being unprepared in advance of it. So, Hema, as, as we see some funds come out, maybe as some of the quant strategies, do we know where the money's being redeployed? We don't have any clarity on, on where the money is being redeployed. Hedge funds are, you know, incredibly secretive. Um, yep. They don't have to reveal much of their positioning except for in 13Fs, and even then that's, you know, 90 days old. Um, and then Renaissance, uh, in particular, they have a, a fund that's closed to, um, to outside investors that's called Medallion, and that is an extremely secretive, um, a secretive uh, vehicle, uh, pool of money. So um, we don't have that kind of clarity. Hema, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Fascinating story here. Hema Palmer, she's hedge fund reporter for Bloomberg News. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.